good to see you. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Jay. Uh, I have the opportunity to uh, serve as a regional leader development here through Cornerstone, and Cornerstone's our home church, so I get the chance to uh, come back every so often and bring the word, and that's what I'm doing today. And we're going to talk about uh, sonship today, a specific nuance of sonship, and what it means for us to... Uh, actually, I mean, what I'm going to talk about today, I think, uh, is actually one of the keys to walking in what true sonship in Christ is and what it means for us to, to be sons of God. I think that that notion tends to get romanced uh, a lot, which is, you know, there's, there's like, there, there, there's a, a, an affectionate, nice side to it. You know, God loves you and you're fully accepted and all those things are very, very true. However, we all know that our children are not like perfect, lovable cherubs, right? Um, sorry, kids that are present of mine. Um, <clears throat> you know, like th- there, there's, there's a lot that we deal with both as, as parents and as kids um, that, that that's an important part of the journey of what it means to belong to a family. Uh, so today I want to talk about the, the concept of what is the church. It's still, this is a, a continual theme that I come back to, particularly uh, in churches like Cornerstone that are interested in identity-based living. Um, so what is the church? They want to look at that the church is a family, but particularly that the church is a family from a, a certain perspective and what it means for us to, uh, to take this posture into ourselves and to live from the place that we're going to talk about today is crucial to what it means to be a son and to be a son who's truly confident and secure in, uh, in our sonship. So uh, just as a reminder, I know I said this before, I'll say it again. Um, it's important. I want to honor both men and women in all the ways that God means to. So uh, there are no daughters in Scripture. There are no daughters of God. There's sons of God. Um, every woman here is a son. Every man here is a bride. So every person carries with them the maleness and femaleness of God. Uh, it takes male and female to reveal God's image. And we're going to talk about image bearing a lot today. Uh, so, um, so sons of God isn't a chauvinistic concept. It's, the, it's a theological concept. Uh, bride of Christ is not a uh, um, emasculating concept. It's actually a very masculating concept. Uh, to be the bride of Christ. So um, today we're going to talk about uh, sonship particularly, but I'm going to use sons. I'm not going to use the word daughters. Please don't take that as an offense, but rather the fullness of what I think the scriptures teach us about what our identities are in Christ. Um, So uh, who knows what today is? Good job, folks. Let's go a little deeper, a little deeper. Uh, (laughs) Close, close. Today is the first day of the Feast of Booths on the Jewish calendar. Today is the first day of Sukkot, which means what just happened this week. On Tuesday, Yom Kippur, which means what happened 10 days before Yom Kippur? Rosh Hashanah. That's right. That's right. So we are standing right now at the most important time in the calendar year. Uh, if you want to have fun, this is a quick rabbit trail. I'm, going to, I'm, going to, I'm two minutes into my sermon, and I'm already on a rabbit trail. This is going to be a fun day. Um, if you want to have fun, go home and Google crazy spiritual stuff that happens in September. And you will find that some of the most integral world events with some of the craziest spiritual ramifications have happened in the month of September. In, in the Jewish mystic world, the month of September is when the veil starts to get thin. In other words, the veil that divides heaven and earth. Um, that, that during this month, God is so close and so near to the celebration of Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, uh, which is followed by 10 days of contemplation, sort of like uh, the Christian tradition would call that Lent. But uh, um, 10 days of contemplation of humility, brokenness, that leads up to Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement, which is the most solemn day in all of the Jewish calendar. Uh, because the Day of Atonement needed to be so deeply respected. That was this past Tuesday, four days ago. That then leads up to the Feast of Booths, which is the biggest party in the history of uh, the Jewish calendar. So it's, it's a very interesting time that we find ourselves in. Uh, uh, Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur to uh, uh, Sukkot, or, or the, the Feast of Booths. And both Justin and I have taught on Sukkot before. We've built things, and so you have a, uh, a mental picture of what that is. However... Um, in the Jewish mindset, th- that rhythm matters, right? So that rhythm matters. In other words, you can't have Sukkot without Rosh Hashanah. 
And you can't have Sukkot without Yom Kippur. Rosh Hashanah without Yom Kippur just means you're dead in your trespasses and sins forever. You know, have a nice life. Yom Kippur without Rosh Hashanah, without those 10 days of contemplation, is just religious token of like, sort of like, yeah, we're all good, right? Yay! Uh, let's have a party now and celebrate the harvest. Th- this rhythm of three, Rosh Hashanah, that leads to Yom Kippur, that leads to uh, uh, the Feast of, uh, Feast of Booths or Sukkot, that, that rhythm matters. And I want to talk about the first 10 days of that rhythm, not the Jewish New Year, but about the concept of can we honestly, truly celebrate our sonship in Christ without deep contemplation into what it means for us to be apart from Christ? Can we celebrate the victory and the depths of the wonder of our salvation and the glory of our identity in Christ while ever leaving a posture of brokenness, humility, and need for the Lord? See, I think that there's a lot of Christian triumphalism today that basically says Jesus died, everything's awesome. And when something enters into your life that's not awesome, what you're generally given is a bunch of Christian cliches that tell you, well, just believe it's awesome, even though it feels like your world is falling apart around you. If you just believe hard enough, if you just have enough faith, or if time can just heal all wounds, then you'll eventually get to the point where you can get back to some sort of like triumphal feelings. However, I just think that that's posturing in an in a, in a inauthentic way. The reason why Sukkot can be as glorious as it is is because our brokenness and need for God is as deep as it is. And the glory and wonder of God is not just that he is who he is, although that's incredible, but that he has come down to be with his people. And, and that when he does that, he enters into our brokenness. Like he chooses to come down to the broken world instead of calling us just at the point of salvation, whenever that is transporting us to heaven which wouldn't that be more loving? Wouldn't it be great to avoid suffering and pain and heartache and the things that uh, break our hearts? Or, uh, no, God chooses to come down and be with us in that. But we live in the story of a God who's continually coming down. If you think about the, my favorite picture for this is the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8, where the Pharisees throw her at Jesus' feet and says that she deserves to be stoned. And Jesus says, uh, um, well, do you remember what he says? He doesn't say anything initially. What does he do? He plays in the dirt. So he stoops down and he plays in the dirt. So if she's there and he's here, if they start throwing stones, who else is in the way? He is. Like This was a purposeful, strategic move on his part. He wasn't just being like funny with writing in the sand. If they're going to start throwing stones, he's going to go down with her too. You know, and that's, that's God. Like that's, that's God. That's how he works. He enters into our brokenness and humility and and for all of our notions of triumphalism and the amazingness of, of some forms of uh, humanism that have got wandered, in, or wandered into our theological constructs that tell us that you're basically a good person, it's not that big a deal, here's the list of really bad sins, don't do those, here's the list of sort of okay sins if you do them, God's, God wants to forgive you for them, everything will be okay. Um, we live in just these bifurcated, systemic worlds of just complete BS that have no meaning uh, when that, that are, that's derived from God anyway. It actually postures us in a very arrogant way when we don't begin with the notion that we need God and that if God doesn't show up, that we have nothing. And a lot of times people then say, but we do have God, so we have everything. Yeah, absolutely, totally. But at the point that I ever leave the desperation of the need that I have for God and like sort of like grow up in God to where I don't quite need him as much as I used to, I've actually grown down, not grown up. I've actually become more immature, not more mature. Because if there's one thing that we should be learning as we grow in Christ, it's that the gospel is as, we're as needy of the gospel today as we've ever been in our lives. And, and that's spiritual maturity. That's why Jesus points to a child and says, this is who leads in my kingdom. Because what level of dependence does a child have? It's just almost complete. And this is the leader. He says the Pharisees, the ones who know everything, they don't know anything. There's empty, empty tombs full of death. They look good on the outside, but it's just full of death. They don't need God. 
There's not brokenness. There's not humility there. Um, And today I want to talk about this phrase. So when we think about the church is a family, right? Sonship garners up the concept of family, uh, what it means for us to be part of the family of God. So when we think about sonship, we're going to talk about the church as a family. And we're going to do so by thinking about what Jesus said when a Pharisee asked him, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus quotes, goes, he goes historical. You know, Jesus goes back to Old uh, Testament, Torah, Deuteronomy, chapter 6. This is a phrase that every Jew would have quoted multiple times a day. Uh, What's the greatest commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest commandment. And a second, Jesus tags this then, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor. How do you love your neighbor? As you love yourself as you love yourself, which means that uh, loving your neighbor well is like the first commandment, which seems to be pretty important. Give yourself to this wholeheartedly. And then love your neighbor how? As you love yourself, which means understanding properly what it means to love yourself is probably really important. I would suggest that to love yourself is to see, consider, regard, and act toward yourself in the ways that God does. Let's all read this together. To love yourself is to see, consider, regard, and act toward yourself in the ways that God does. That's what it means to love yourself. To love yourself is is to adopt God's view of you so that how God sees you is how you choose to see you. Again, I think that our triumphalistic tendencies then say, God says that I'm more than a conqueror. God says that I'm victorious. God says that I'm washed clean. God says that uh, I'm, I'm awesome. God would never do anything that would make me feel bad about myself or any of those things. Like God wants me to, to, uh, uh, to know him fully and to, uh, you know, rejoice in the security I have in him. That's absolutely all true. I think the biggest thing that God says, though, is that you need me. You need me. And that's not from a control perspective. That's from a love perspective. Because without God, what do we have? In other words, if we don't have God, then we can't know how to see ourselves. We can't know how to regard ourselves. We can't know how to consider ourselves. We can't know how to act toward ourselves. Because God then becomes the starting point. Oftentimes, when we think about loving our neighbor as we love ourselves, we then become the starting point. So it could be easy for this definition to read. To love yourself is to see, consider, regard, and act toward yourself in the ways that you want to believe that God does toward you. So what we oftentimes want is we want God to be like Shady Maple Smorgasbord, where we go up and we survey all of the pickings, and we go around and put on our plate the things that we like. You know, and so we, we load up with all the different things. However... The things that we don't like as much, we don't put on our plate. But with God, you either eat the whole meal or you eat none of the meal. And and that's crucial. And that's not a point of control on his part. It is a point of, this is how I love you. It's either me or it's nothing. And he says that over and over and over to his people. And we're going to talk a lot about this. So who knows the truest you? Obviously God. We'll take that one off the... Who knows the truest you? I do? That's a good question. Who knows the truest you? I'll tell you who knows the truest you. Your family does. Your, Your family knows the truest you. You've got some inklings about you. But James says, don't be self-deceived. Which means that you can be self-deceived. Which means you lie to you and you believe your lies. It's difficult to deceive your family. And I want to make sure I posture this family rightly, just for those folks here who might be, uh, might not be married, might not have kids. I'm talking about family just in in the generality of it. I don't want to glorify something that shouldn't be glorified today. But the people that you're closest to, the closest relationship to you, know you best. I can find out the most about you by talking to the relationships closest to you. So who knows the truest you? Your family. That might be your biological family. That might be your spiritual family. 
But people who experience you actually generally know you because how you act is coming from somewhere. It's coming from your mind. It's coming from your heart. It's coming from your beliefs. Who knows the truest you? The people that you're closest to know the truest you. So I could go to the people that you're closest to in your life, biological and or spiritual family, and say, so what is this person like? Tell me about them. And they'll be able to tell me a lot of things. And I would say things like, be sure to include the good and the bad. And they would tell me about the good and the bad about you. If I come to you and ask you, tell me all the good and bad things about you, that may or may not be true. Because we tend to be self-deceived, particularly regarding the things about us that we don't like. So my family might tell you that uh, uh, Jay is a mean cuss. I might tell you, I've got some problems with my temper. There's a big difference between those two things, right? Who knows the truest you? Your family knows the truest you. Put that in the terms of the church. Who knows the truest you? Your father knows the truest you. And your brothers and sisters know the truest you. I think that we're living in a day right now that actually fosters false senses of family and community and belonging so that the truest us is actually never on display. And here's what I mean. Here is oftentimes how we choose to represent ourselves to the world. So when I post pictures on Facebook or when I tweet something or when I snapplegram something or, uh, or when I want to make, you know, prospective clients think good about me on my LinkedIn profile or whatever it is, on, on LinkedIn... I don't put up the clients that I lost. You know, I put up the ones that I'm successful with. On Instagram, I don't post pictures of my wife and I in a knockdown drag out fight. I picture us, you know, on the beach this past summer smiling with the waves behind us. And everybody thinks, oh, what a wonderful world. Isn't this great? I don't post about the, the failures of, uh, of myself as a parent. I don't put quotes up that uninspire people. Right? I mean, I'm only posting inspirational things. It's such an interesting thing. We, listen closely, this is a Justin word. You'll recognize it. We curate our self-image through these. Just like an art, just like an art museum, an art curator. You know, in the back of every art museum is thousands of pieces that aren't on the walls. A curator goes in there, thinks about what he or she wants to display for a theme to communicate something, and chooses the art to represent whatever that theme is. And we curate our image through these things so that what you see about me has been curated by me so that you're receiving the image of me that I think that you want or that I I think that I want you to have about me so that everything's happy, everything's good, you know, Rarely does anything broken really enter into things. And everybody in this room deals with deep levels of brokenness. But nobody posts about the fact that our marriage is on the verge of divorce and we haven't told anybody. Nobody posts about the eating disorder. You know, nobody posts about the grief that it's been years and I'm still as raw as I was the day I lost them. Or if we do, it's oftentimes just in very, very safe ways. It's just like through a cliche. <laughs> we'll just like stick it out there and then see how people respond. And then how people respond to our curated image of ourselves tells us whether or not we're curating those images well. Up here as well, you'll see uh, like HBO, Comcast, Netflix. I don't put myself on there either. Now, but that's a passive representation. See, act, you actively curate your image on Facebook, Instagram, whatever else. You passively curate your image and what it is that you choose to view back toward you. So if, you wa- if, 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 you, if we lined up all the shows that Jay has watched on Netflix in the last five years, you would be able to tell something about me. Like you, you would be able to learn some things. I could do the same thing with you. I think these are ways that we curate our image, curate ourself. Uh, when I think about, I actually did this exercise um, where like I looked at Netflix viewing history. You know what I view a lot? Powerful men. 
I've, I've used stories about men who have figured out a way to be powerful in light of adversity that's come against them. And that's not just a typical cliche story. It's like, that, that's who I want to be. Like, I want to be a powerful man. That, that's what I want to be out in my job. It's what I want to be toward my kids. It's what I want to be toward my wife. Like, I want to be thought of as powerful. It has a lot to do with the fact that I oftentimes have experienced powerlessness. Right? And so, particularly, if you think about, since you folks all know me, since you think about, like, our family, our two kids in CF, I've got no power there. I'm completely powerless to change the very thing I want to change the most. So then what do I watch on Netflix? People with power. I think when we open up doors to ourselves to be able to think like this, we can see what it is that we curate, and we can find the the deep holes that are missing in there, and we can say to God in those spots, like, God, you gotta, you gotta help me with this. Like, this is, this is more than what I can take. The church has always had things like this to represent something. Uh, we're always looking for art that shows who we are or that speaks to us as persons. One of the church's favorite forms of art historically is called the icon. And again, you've heard both me and Justin teach on this before. And uh, so here's, here's my favorite icon. Um, this is Peter and Paul in what the iconographer's uh, artistic portrayal is of what he or she pictured in their mind of Peter and Paul reconciling after Paul confronted Peter in Galatians chapter 2 about his sin over not eating with Gentiles, of being afraid of the Judaizers. So if you look at this icon, you'll notice some very basic things about it. So an icon almost always has a gold background. An icon almost always has an entry point a circle of some kind, a portal. Uh, It's usually in the form of a halo on whoever that saint is that's being represented. Icons are generally represent, do have saints on them. Um, However, a lot of times in Western church, Eastern Orthodoxy embraces iconography. In the Western church, we tend to reject it because we see it almost as like idolatrous. I don't pray to saints. I pray to Jesus. Nobody's going to tell me who to pray for or pray toward. Uh, Well, that's not what Eastern Orthodox does. You see, an icon isn't made to look at. An icon is made to look through. So when you see an icon, the question, only the initial question is, who is that? The deeper question is, what does that person have to tell me about God? How can I look through Peter and Paul's conflict to see what it is that God has? That's why the background is always gold, right? That's where God is. He's in heaven where the sun dwells, where all of his holiness and splendor is. There's a portal for me to get there, that circle, that halo thing that takes me through that person's mind, through that person's experience, and that delivers me then to the throne of God where I can contemplate reconciliation in my life. Icons are made to look through, not look at. And when we recognize those things, you can actually then take a story of St. Moses or St. Peter or whoever else it might be. Think about that and experience the Lord and be directed toward prayer and contemplative prayer through whatever person it is that's in the icon. So here we have Peter and Paul embracing in a holy kiss after the conflict. And what does that lead us to? That leads us to the concept of family. Here's two brothers who have found each other again, who quite frankly loved each other well in the midst of the conflict because conflict happens. And then also reconciled after that conflict to come together. Lord, what would you have me learn in this? And now I'm at God's throne. And this uh, relationship, these persons have become the way that I can think through them into God's presence. We're not so big on icons today. Or are we? Today's icon. Except this is very much a look at me. Don't look through me. This has happened more than once. Yesterday, this is so sad. Yesterday, a woman fell off a 200-foot cliff in Michigan taking a selfie of herself in a national park. She just wanted to get a better view, took one step back, and over she went. Getting so destructively focused on making sure the selfie was right that safety went out the window. It's the, the, the selfie and the way that we do and please don't hear me say, uh, coming down on selfies. I take selfies uh, sometimes. Um, 
because I still can't figure out how to use the volume buttons to click the picture. I know some of these buttons do them on the side, but like it's very difficult. I won't get into my issues. Uh, anybody know how many um, average selfies a year uh, the normal person, the average American teenager between the ages of 14 and 18 takes uh, in the course of a year? How many selfies? <laughs> 10, 10, 10,000. <laughs> yeah, 600. 600-ish. It's like two a day. Two, two a day. And some of the teenagers in here are like, man, I got friends that take a lot more than that. <laughs> uh, yeah, where it's just a... And, and then what do we do with those selfies usually? We curate them, right? And we post them. And if the selfie doesn't turn out right the first time, what do you do? You just take it again. Why? Because you want to both think of yourself and be thought of by the people who see it the way that you want to come across. So if, if in this selfie, like my eyes are closed for some reason, um, like that's, that, that's, we don't put that up. We don't put up Jay's a failure at taking selfies. We just retake the selfie. Because when I post it, I want you to be sure that you understand what I want you to get which is that while I'm in, uh, on this beach with my wife, we're having a great time, and I can take a competent selfie. And, and the selfie becomes, I, I think the selfie is our icon now. I, I think this is what it's, what it's become. We, we, we selfie ourselves to death, where it's very much a look at me. Don't look through me. In fact, please don't look through me. Because God knows what you'll find if you look through me. Because to look through me means you first have to look in me. And the beauty of the icon that is Peter and Paul in this situation is, is that you absolutely do look in them and see something very ugly. I mean, Peter, when Paul wrote Galatians, he couldn't text Peter to be like, dude, do you mind if I put this in this letter, the Galatians? I mean, they were thousands of miles apart. There was no checking in, you know. Paul just aired Peter out there for the people of Galatia. <laughs> but there's also the reconciliation that came as a result of it. So you absolutely see Peter's sin. You absolutely see Peter's failure. Paul curates that for you and helps you to be edified by it so that we're looking through that into God. When in actuality, the key thing in the selfie is to make sure that you can't look through me, that you do see what it is that I want you to see, that you look at me. In so doing... We take being created in God's image and we make it being created in man's image so that we make ourselves after ourselves. My favorite, one of my favorite parts of the Matrix is when Neo takes the, uh, uh, the red pill and he wakes up and he finds himself plugged back into the Matrix with, uh, with uh, um, Morpheus and uh, he doesn't have the plug in his head in, in that virtual world. He doesn't have the plug in his head. And he's not dressed in shabby clothes. He's got this really, like, tight suit on. And he looks really good. And he goes, like, what is this place? And what am I wearing? And he says, and, and Morpheus says, that's your self-actualized person. That's how you think of you. His reality was is that he had a plug in the back of his head. He's wearing these shabby, nasty clothes that stink. But in his mind, in his imagination, he is put together, he is tight, and he looks good. I think a lot of our lives are spent begging people to see me as the icon that I want you to see me as. Because if you can love the projection I give you, then I can love me. But if we start with me, and if we start with our own projections of what it is that we want, if we're honest with ourselves, we know how dark our darkness can be. And we know how broken our brokenness actually is. And we know how far from humility we actually are. And we know how strong our old man is. And like Paul in Romans 7, saying, I do the things that I don't want to do, and I don't do the things that I do want to do. A lot of us in the church go, don't make me think about that stuff. Like, that's what Jesus saved me from, is all that stuff that you're asking me to think about. Like, come on, what kind of a pastor are you? Folks, you cannot have Sukkot without Rosh Hashanah. You cannot move into the Holy of Holies without going past the brazen altar. 
This is absolutely about the fact that there is a wall that's been there, and without a sacrifice, it can't be crossed. And what saves you is not the mental assent to pray some prayer in the past. What makes us united with Christ is our deep need for God and our need for the, for the brokenness and humility that is our reality to actually be put out there before him to say, God, would you help? Just like Paul, God, what am I going to do with me? Oh, wretched person that I am, who will save me from this? Who will save me from this? Who will save me from my curated life of fakeness? Like, who will help me with this thing? And that's where we find ourselves when it comes to what does it mean to love yourself? Because I think that the world is screaming at us, love yourself like this. Curate your image. Make yourself look good. Focus on you. And to the degree that the church can be a nice place that wants to receive you for the way that you project yourself, good. But at the point that you're rejected, just go find another church. Because there's other churches somewhere who won't get into those same sorts of things. One of my great griefs over the time that I was a pastor here uh, was the fact that one thing I loved about Cornerstone was I felt like we could have some degree and dimension of reality and authenticity together. And a lot of times people would come and they would really embrace what it is that we were about. We would pursue their life and then we would get in there and be like, You know, uh, have you ever thought about the fact that maybe your life isn't aligned with Christ in this way? And oftentimes, more times than I can count, people would say, like, I came to Cornerstone because I heard it was a place where you love everybody. And I would say, we are loving you. Like, this, whatever this is, like, it can't be there. And they're like, don't love me like that. Like, I just... I like the fact that I walk in the door and I get a hug from Ben and I walk in here and there's cool music and I, 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 I get talked to people, talk to me during the greeting time and there's an interesting word and then I talk to people and then I go home back to my regular life. But when it comes to actually getting in there and like refining ourselves and for us to get into each other's lives, like this is an embrace that's difficult because it does away with that. It does away with the projections of how it is that we curate our life. Because the truth is, the truth is that everyone in here is encountering pain, suffering, the brokenness of ourself, and the brokenness of our world in ways that we can't explain and that we surely can't do anything about. Which means then, if that's true, then I can't love myself. I'm the source of my problems. So instead, I'll just make a false me And I'll curate that whole thing on social media or wherever it is that you do your gig and project those things outwardly without ever turning around to say, God, what about this? What about about this person? So we end up living divided lives. We end up becoming spiritually schizophrenic. And we lose our identities completely. And we end up going to church and being a good person. What we don't end up, do, end up doing is being agents of transformation and reformation in the world. Because we just project ourselves that we think that we want everywhere that we go. Who knows the truest you? God knows the truest you. See, we can actually play this game and get away with it. The, the curated and projection of ourselves to the world you, you can pull that off, particularly anybody in this room that's younger than me because your world's being formed in a very different way than my world or anybody older than me in this room was formed. The ability for you to curate and to uh, be anything other than what you truly are, especially the parts of yourself that you don't like the most, that's very, very high. Just understand it's going to come at a very, very deep cost because you'll live as a spiritually schizophrenic person where you'll have to be one thing in one situation and then pick up a different personality in another situation and then become a different thing in another situation. And we end up living compartmentalized lives where we lose our sense of self because we're not a whole person anymore. Because the ugliness and the brokenness that I actually experience inwardly, I can't project outwardly because if I curate that outwardly, then maybe you won't love me. 
and not being loved is just about the worst thing that humans can experience. So because God knows the truest us and what it means for us to be fully and truly us, let's think about a couple of principles. Number one, the family is meant to build a home that is centered on building a home for God. Right, the family is meant to build a home that is centered on building a home for God. So that the purpose for why it is that we're together, both as biological families and, and as a spiritual family, is very much to build something that is not centered and focused on us. That's, that's really interesting. It, it's very, very focused and... Uh, um, we're very aware of the need for health in our home lives. And therefore, health in our home lives oftentimes becomes what it is that we're searching for instead of a life that's centered around Christ. Let me say this another way. I'm confusing myself as I talk. Um, I, was with a, I was with a company recently, and this company, uh, I was, I'm doing consulting with them, and uh, uh, they're a Christian company, family-based company, um, and they're being quite successful in what they do. Um, and they've done that through a deep level of intentionality on building a healthy corporate culture. Uh, and so, like, they've worked very, very hard at, at making sure people talk well, and that there's goals that are being accomplished, and that teams are working as good teams, and people are being overseen well. Um, and, frankly, they've pulled it off. They have a really, really healthy culture. So a couple of weeks ago, sat down with this company and said, so, like, now what? what what's next? They're very successful. They're making money hand over fist. They're, they're doing great. And I just sat down to say, so like now what? What is the point of this? Like, what is it that you're searching for? What is it that you're building toward? Because if it's just to sell your product and have a healthy corporate culture, is that why God has put this company here? Just being, having a nice healthy, warm culture where everybody feels like they belong and they have fun at work, that's not good enough. Like, that's not enough. Healthy culture should just be a vehicle toward glorifying God through the mission that God's calling you to, which means that if you're not challenged on some level to be more than what you are, then you're not glorifying God to the degree that you could. I think our families get into these systems too, just the same way, where it's sort of like, well, we got a healthy family system, right? How do we know that? Well, we don't fight all the time. Uh, We've got some money in the bank. We live in a relatively nice house. We have two cars. We have two and a half kids. Uh, we, you know, everybody's pretty well behaved. Mom and dad fight sometimes, but it doesn't get out of hand. The kids are pretty good. They get pretty good grades. They take care of each other. What's the, what do we want? We really want, just want our kids to be happy and successful when they grow up. Uh, we want to make sure that we make it through the end of our lives uh, as a united married couple, and there we go. And this, I think, makes for us these warm, tepid, 72-degree pools of home life that leave us very, very safe but that don't produce transformational movement in the world. Because what we've created for is a home for one another and not a home for God. Because I think when we invite God into the midst of those things, he's like a hand grenade that gets thrown into the midst of our lives where we say, God, these kids are yours. We dedicate them to you. And then he says, okay, I'm going to live like that. Will you? Or is this just an exercise in church for you? where we say, God, we want our marriage to be strong. And God says, you realize strength only comes through resistance. So if you want a storm, I'll give it to you. It'll make your marriage strong. We we curate and say to God, like, love me, but don't love me like that. God, come into our home, but just make sure it doesn't get uncomfortable for us. God wants to come in and love us for who we truly, fully are, and invite us to love ourselves for who we really, truly are. But that starts with our deep and never-ending need for him, which is why the purpose of a home is to build a home for God. The purpose and health, the purpose of the health and viability of the personal is always the health and viability of the corporate. The, The purpose of the health and viability of the individual is always the health and viability of the corporate. Personal worship is meant, to, is meant to infuse life into corporate worship. I, as an individual, am not healthy unto myself. It is for the sake of my family. It is for the sake of the people that I work with. 
right? My, my personal health, my personal viability, my personal who I am, it's not about my own contentment with me. It's so that I can love you. And if I can't love and see myself the way God does, then I can't love you and see you the way God does. So if the second is like unto it, then that means that I better come to a good understanding of what it means for me to be in God and to know God the way it is that he wants to bring himself to me. Therefore, being real with who you are as a person and who you are not as a person is critical to the health of the family as a family. Right? Being real with who you are and who you are not is critical to what it means for this family to be healthy. So let's think about ancient Israel again, and we'll bring a picture to this. Uh, yeah, so when the people of Israel were traveling through the wilderness, they would travel with, they were a nomadic people, right? So they would have tents and, and, and herds and uh, flocks and all those different sorts of things, and there were a lot of them, I mean, probably a million at least. Lots of people walking through the wilderness, and when they would stop to set up camp for months or uh, years at a time, um, they would set up camp in a specific fashion. Anybody know what, how that was? What was at the center? The, yeah, the tabernacle. The tabernacle. I'm going to use the word temple um, uh, just because for continuity's sake. Uh, so the, 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 the temple was at the center. And then who camped around the temple? The tribes did. What tribe was closest to the temple? Levi. That's right. They were the priests. And then the other tribes were arranged very specifically. Christians love this. I'm just going to get, here's another rabbit trail for you. A one minute, like, Christian invention. It's so fun. It's just so fun. Whoever thought this up, it just had such a good heart. But it's so wrong. Everybody, like, this is how they used to camp. It's in the shape of a cross. Can't you see? It's in the shape of a cross. Like, from the, the very picture of the nation of people of God is in the shape of a cross. Uh, yeah, not so much. Um, this is horrible for defense. The reason why they would set things up, and it would look a lot more like this, was for the purpose of keeping people, bad people out and good people in. <laughs> this is how nomadic tribes would live. This is, a very, uh, this is a very European way to go to war. <laughs> this, this is a nomadic family getting together. And so the people of God would come together and uh, uh, would be camping, and there would be the temple at the, at the center. So the way that the sacrificial system worked is really important in understanding why they set up like this. So a couple of things. The temple was at the middle. Levi encamped immediately around the temple because they were the priests and they had to get to work. And then there was a specific where, uh, a specific, uh, specific placement for each one of the tribes so that it worked out that it was pretty even all the way around the temple. Everyone pitched their tent facing the temple. Right, so you faced toward the center. So let's say that we're in our tent. My wife and I and our family is in our tent, and Sherry and I get into a fight, and I speak just completely uh, out of line, completely unrighteous toward her. And I realize that sin, you know, and there's witnesses to it, and I'm caught. Like, what do I, what do I have to do if I'm an ancient Jew? I have to offer a sacrifice. That's right. So where were the flocks and the herds kept? Outside of the camp. That makes sense, folks, right? And that's a lot of doo-doo in one spot where you're walking. Uh, so if I sin against my wife, that means I have to walk outside the camp and I have to find whatever it is that I can afford according to my sin offering for that situation. So let's say that I can afford a lamb, a perfect lamb. So I go... And I either get one of my perfect lambs or I, uh, I, I buy one from a neighbor. I'm now outside the camp. Where do I have to take my sacrifice? To the temple. So I now take this lamb and I either carry it or lead it back through the camp. And here I am. And I'm making my way you know, back toward the temple. And what, what does everybody know about me? Yeah. I blew it. The whole camp I am now on display for. And people are like, man, that's like the fourth time we've seen Jay going to the <laughs> temple this week. 
this is, he, he's having a rough time. Holy cow. And here I go walking with my sacrifice back toward, uh, back toward the temple. And everybody in the entire camp knows what's true about me. Everybody in the entire camp knows the exact same thing that I know, which is that I'm broken. I, got, I have screwed up. I don't walk through camp screaming, I disrespected my wife. I disrespected my wife. No, but everybody knows something happened. However, this is a family. Am I the only person out of a million walking to the temple today? When I get there, I don't just walk up to the altar. What do I have to do? Stand in line. I have to actually queue up at the altar. From what we know from the scriptures, the priests were busy all day, every day. Like there was no break. No priest ever said to another, boy, the lunch rush was tough. (laughs) It was all rush, all the time. Because there was one place where our sins could be atoned. And it was at the brazen altar. So then, here I am, with all these other people in line, with the whole camp having seen me walked through camp. And I now find myself not just aware of my own sin, but everybody else aware too. And it's not a shameful thing. Why is it not shameful? Because we're all in it. Because we're all in it together. Like we, we all do this all the time. This is our spiritual rhythm. The rhythm of the nation of Israel, the rhythm of God's people was continual awareness of need for God to fill in those places that I'm broken and those places that I humiliate myself and those places that I lose control. Is for God to meet me in that spot because if he doesn't meet me in that spot, then I'm not a part of the community. Like that, that, that's how blatant this is. Like if you don't atone for your sins, then you are not a part of the Jewish system in the Old Testament. That's why fast forward to the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says something crazy that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. What that means is that like the community needs to be clean and remain clean. So when we fail, we have to rectify that. That needs to be righted. So I take this thing in front of everyone so that the whole place sees that I'm broken. And what do we have? We have a non-shame-based community where shame is not the issue at all. Where guilt is. We're absolutely all guilty. We're standing in line there waiting for it. And this animal is about to take our guilt on itself so that we can have freedom from that guilt. And that happens with all of us together. And we're all in it together. And this is the family of God. And the family of God is not marked by people who figured out how not to sin. The family of God is marked by people who are real and authentic with their sin and who are tender toward it and who are tender toward God and one another to say that when the love toward God breaks down or when the love toward my neighbor breaks down or when I don't see myself the way that God wants me to and that breaks down, well, that's not a place for shame. That is a place for things to be made right though. So let's do this and let's do it together. You're walking to the temple and I'm walking to the temple and I saw you walk into the temple yesterday and I can with certainty tell you I'm gonna walk to the temple again tomorrow, next week, God knows when. But here we all together going about this together because I'm broken and you're broken and I'm humble and you're humble and we're in it together. But where we find ourselves in Western Christianity is curating our proud self images saying, think of me only the way I want you to think of me with smiles and selfies and all kinds of good stuff around me so that how you think of me, sin can't enter into that picture. You don't see the darkness. You don't see the questions. You don't see what it is that enters into my mind when I think about what it means for me to be me out in my work world or in my school world or in those different places. I don't curate that toward you. And God forbid that I ever offend you to the point where I have to come to you and ask your forgiveness. How often does that happen in our lives? Once, twice a year. And when it happens, it's a huge stinking deal. And that's a shame. Because God means for brokenness, humility, forgiveness, repentance to be the posture of our hearts. The reason why I take my lamb through the camp is because the sin of me affects the community. 
that we're actually in this together. And I walk through the camp, and we all together stand authentic, broken, and very real before the Lord with the reality of what's gone wrong. Van Gogh's Starry Night, yellow represents divinity. Where is there not yellow? In the church. See, God resists who? The proud. Who does God give grace to? The humble. And so as long as we stand curating our wonders instead of embracing our brokenness and humility and walking with our sacrifice through the camp, and we come to the brazen altar, and we bring this offering, and we bring all of our sin and all of our brokenness, and we find ourselves here. That's the only place where we can end up. That if we don't have this, we don't have anything. If we don't have this, we're left to ourselves. And we're lost to our sin. And we can curate whatever in the world we want to curate. We can look as awesome as we want to look. But the reality does not change that we are not. That we are a broken, needy people, needy of God. And the beauty of God is that he has come down. And that we bring and receive a sacrifice, not day after day after day, but Jesus died one time for all, that all might be delivered. We come to a body that's broken, just like that lamb's body would have been broken. We come to blood that's been shed, just like that lamb's blood was shed. But we come not day after day. We come with this once-for-all sacrifice. And that's a massive change in the difference between ancient Israel and us today. What's not a change between ancient Israel and us today is the nature of humanity. That hasn't changed. And we still find ourselves deeply needy of God. But something about our religious structures tells us that we shouldn't need him like we once did. And that spiritual maturity means that we somehow figure out how not to sin. But then we end up like hiding our sin so that the once or twice that it comes out, we're like super embarrassed. And it's a really shameful experience. And I'm not advocating for taking sin lightly, but I am advocating for getting in it together. And for understanding that the brokenness and the authenticity that God calls us to is not a failure. When we embrace that with God, what that is, is that's the victory. That's the victory. When, when the child of God can say, Dad, I screwed up. <laughs> and when we as the children of God can say, Dad, we messed up. That's where there can be grace poured out because God resists the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. And we don't wallow in our iniquity. We rather receive deliverance from it. And the beauty of what we have in God is his statement of love your neighbor as you love yourself, which I think is an invitation from him to understand our sonship in the fullest, deepest dimensions that it's meant to be understood, which is I love you, I'm with you, that never changes. My favor is always upon you. But son, understand this. Full redemption is still on its way. And your world wants to tear you apart. The thief is stealing and killing and destroying everywhere around you. And the thief wants to steal, kill, and destroy you. And the more slow and miserable, the better. Because he hates you. And he wants to rage on you. And he will use whatever little insidious lies and accusations or behaviors that there are in this world to try and get you to agree with him that I don't love you, that I'm not good, that I'm not for you, or that you can't do this, that you can't have victory. 
that you can't walk the way I've called you to walk. But son, understand this. Embrace, embrace your weakness. When you are weak, then I am strong. So stop curating your strength. Instead, come to me as my family with your weakness and let me be strong for you. Uh, Worship team, you can come back up. Most of our churches today want to grow. want to grow in number or money or whatever. Did you folks see the marquee outside, what it says? Oh God, forgive your church for the wrongs we have done. That's not a cry of shame. That's a cry of reality. Like, dear God, help us. Because if we don't have you, we don't have anything. And we are a broken, needy people. So come and help us. Come and help us. Come and cleanse us. Come and redeem us. And that's not embarrassing and that's not shameful because we're all in it together. Like this is us. And rather than trying to grow our churches, I, I think that God is looking for a remnant, for a church, capital C, that just simply wants a move of God. However it happens, just God move. Do something. Enliven us. Awaken us. Revive us. Let God come and cleanse us. And I think we get so focused on our, these man-made structures of what it means to be like a good, healthy church. God just wants a, a humble, broken people who are willing to st- stand before him and say, God, we don't have what it takes, but you do. So come and move among us. Every major move of God in history was prefaced by a people who were willing to get on their knees and pray and confess their sins to one another. Every major move of God well, in, in Western Civ was prefaced by, by people on their knees and confessing their sins to one another. And so, as the scriptures say, fulfilling the law of Christ. So I think that God is standing with a deep invitation today for each of us of come and understand what love is. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Let me show you how I see you. I think that's the invitation from the Lord. Let me show you how I regard you. Let me show you how I consider you. In those spaces, that's where the enemy comes in and says things like, God thinks that you suck. God loves you, but he hates your sin. He hates your sin so much that he sort of hates you. Like those are the places, if you hear that, that's not God. And I think a lot of us are afraid to stop curating our life because then God might start curating it and God help us if that happens. I mean, look what happened when God curated Abraham's life. God created Abraham's life and he made him try and kill his son. God curated Rahab's life and she almost died. God curated David's life and uh, look where that got him. God curated all the prophets' lives. No good. Or was it? Is that what life really is meant to be? Is that what we're really supposed to be searching for? And so receiving God's love. We're going to go to the temple together. We're all going to get up and gather and be together back there. Together. Queuing up. In line. With our brokenness. And our deep need for the Lord and for his grace. Here at Cornerstone we sing while we take communion. So... While we sing, you're welcome to just get up from your spot. Uh, um, everyone's welcome to go back and to partake of the uh, bread and cup. Take a piece of bread and dip it in the juice. And so um, uh, honor the Lord's body and his blood. But let's do so today with a deep level of our need for God. There's going to be prayer ministry over here. Joy and Michael Angley praying for us. Um, and I, I just encourage you that to seek prayer for one of two things. Seek prayer for whatever you want, but two things come to mind today. Number one, that God would break down pride and that God would reveal how you curate you. So that's one. That God would break down pride and reveal how to curate you. Or 
feel free to share with Joy or Michael Ann or whoever else prays for you. Like, what is that curated thing that needs to fall so that God's grace can be found by you in a new way in that area of your life? God, thank you for your grace and love toward us. We receive you and your love again. And we come together now as your family to your house in our brokenness and our hurt and all the different ways that life has found us and that we've uh, found our own darkness. And we together come as the needy people of God who need you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your grace.